Welcome back to the program. The recent debate and court challenge to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 reminds us of the once and future fragility of registering black voters in the South. Back in 1966, a year after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, James Meredith, who became the first African-American student to attend the University of Mississippi, set out on an almost solitary march from Memphis to Jackson to register black voters. At the end of that march, which started on June 5, 1966, the civil rights movement would be forever transformed. The movement's twin goals of the dream of integration and nonviolence would be replaced by black power and impatience. It's a story not as famous as the Selma to Montgomery march a year earlier, but its impact was everlasting and its tensions are still relevant today. We're going to talk about this march and its aftermath today with my guest, Aram Gatsuzian. He is chair of the History Department at the University of Memphis. He's the author of previous books about Bill Russell and Sidney Poitier. And it is my pleasure to welcome Aram Gatsuzian here to talk about Down to the Crossroads, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Meredith March Against Fear. Aram, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Great to have you here. I want to begin by talking a little bit about James Meredith because he's such an interesting, quirky, and odd figure from the time that he was admitted to the University of Mississippi and then kind of disappeared for a little while. Talk about that. Mm, sure. He's, he, as you mentioned, he is a very quirky and a figure and very much an individualist, uh, and this grows out of his whole experience. Uh, he grows up in uh, in the hill country of Mississippi, but his parents have sort of set him and his, his siblings apart. Uh, the, they always have a, sort of a sense of themselves having a special destiny, and particularly James. Uh, and he also spends uh, 10 years in the Air Force um, prior to his uh, experience at Ole Miss. So he has a strong sense of military hierarchy and discipline and a strong sense of himself as an individual. So he spends he actually spends just one year at Ole Miss. He's, he's accumulated a number of college credits before he integrates Ole Miss. So he spends just a single year at Ole Miss. But it's an exceptionally harrowing year, right? His uh, his entry into the university is, is met with extreme violence, and he has to be guarded by um, uh, federal officials throughout his throughout his stint there. So it's a very isolating and, and dangerous experience. And from there, James Meredith has this you know incredible status in Black America. Uh, you know, he's he is it's one of the signposts of the civil rights movement in the early 1960s. But Meredith himself is struggling to find his place in a larger movement. He doesn't want to really associate with any major civil rights organization. He doesn't see himself as part of an organization, uh, given his individualism. But he is, uh, sort of, he moves around. He spends some time in Washington, D.C. He goes to Nigeria, where he accepts a fellowship, uh, but he abandons that fellowship after a single year. Uh, at, and then he enrolls in Columbia Law School in New York. So he spent a year at Columbia Law when he begins this walk uh, from Memphis to Jackson in June of 1966. But he does so having lost a lot of his previous notoriety um, when he starts his walk. And uh, there's you know a handful of, of major news out, outlets there, but it's more that they're, they're covering the story as almost as a curiosity, not as a major political event. And is one of the reasons that he does this march to, to regain some of his notoriety? I mean, he's even thinking about a political career at some point. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he's outlined two main goals for this. He's, he said he's going to walk from Memphis, Tennessee to Jackson, Mississippi, about 220 miles down Highway 51, uh, and with the stated goals of in, encouraging black people to register to vote. Uh, again, this is the year after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, and uh, you know, there's the beginnings of some momentum for black voter registration in Mississippi. And the second aspect, which is interrelated, is that he says he wants to 
conquer the, uh, a culture of fear, uh, to, to fight back against white intimidation. If he, James Meredith, you know, sort of a hated figure among whites in Mississippi, can walk from Memphis to Jackson, uh, then it will encourage others to, to also summon their courage and, and register to vote. But as you, as, you, as you suggested, there's a third goal there as well, and that is to stimulate his own political career. He envisions that by walking along this path, it will help to, him to regain notoriety. He'll also make connections with local political leaders along the way. And as he, regist- as he encourages people to register to vote, he assumes that in the future they might vote for him. So he's envisioning perhaps a run for a political office in 67 or 68, in, back in Mississippi. And the second day of the march, all that changes. Exactly. The second day of the march transforms what well, began as this essentially a single man's walk into a, a civil rights extravaganza. Because on the second day of the walk, you just pass through the town of Hernando, the first town you encounter in Mississippi, uh, marching south on Highway 51. And you've got a nice enthusiastic response from the local people there, so he's feeling very, very uh, uh, optimistic. He finally he feels like he's fulfilling his mission. And then just a few miles south of Hernando, uh, a white man jumps out of the woods, shoots three times, and wounds Meredith. Uh, and it immediately becomes uh, national and international news. There's a famous picture of Meredith writhing on the highway that later wins the Pulitzer Prize for photography uh, that's flashed across you know, the front page of every major newspaper in America. Um, and it, it leads to cries of outrage and injustice. There's black protests throughout the country. Uh, uh, and the major civil rights organizations, the major civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King, including Stokely Carmichael, the new chairman of SNCC, including Roy Wilkins, the executive secretary of the NAACP, they all come to Memphis with the idea that they're going to have to now carry on Meredith's march uh, to Jackson. So it had begun as this individual quest, and it turns into a mass march. And in fact, the initial reports were that Meredith had been killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an Associated Press reporter back in Memphis who overheard a radio description of, or excuse me, a telephone description of what was going on, and he over, and he misheard it, and he reported Meredith is dead to the AP wire. So for a few hours, a number of people were hearing that, that James Meredith was dead before the report was corrected, and that helped in particularly inflame passions in black communities. Uh, in New York, for instance, in, in Harlem, the rumor on the street was that Meredith was dead, and people feared that it was going to tr- that it was going to explode into a, a, a race riot as it occurred two years earlier there. Um, so that helped to inflame the, the passions as well, yeah. And as this story starts to come together, as all these civil rights leaders go down there, there really are three central characters to this story, as you talk about it. There's Meredith, obviously, but Martin Luther King and Stokely Carmichael really are the two tent poles of this story. Yeah, they, they, they really are. Um, I mentioned Roy Wilkins of the NAACP. He was among the leaders who came down. Uh, but Wilkins is quickly uh, not a major story in the march because... He, he decides that the NAACP is not going to officially participate in the march because he feels they can no longer really work with the more militant groups like Carmichael, SNCC, uh, like the Congress of Racial Equality or CORE. Uh, these are groups that are increasingly, uh, uh, their militancy has, has pushed them to speak out against the Vietnam War, to boycott or to criticize Lyndon Johnson's recent conference on civil rights that he held at the White House, uh, to question the utility of racial integration, and for Wilkins, whose orientation is toward Washington uh, and toward uh, sort of integrating uh, into the larger fabric of American democracy, he can no longer work with these groups. So the NAACP is out. So that leaves Martin Luther King as sort of the main moderating influence on the march uh, against the surging militancy. Uh, so this is there's a wonderful 
and dynamic creative tension between King and Carmichael. Each depends upon the other uh, because it's Carmichael who can voice the discontent uh, that, that, is, that is really emerging uh, and that King can tap into. But Carmichael needs King's presence. He needs King's moral authority because where Martin Luther King goes, the national press follows, but moreover, the local people of Mississippi come. They they want to they want to see Martin Luther King. They want to hear him speak. They they want to touch him. They want to literally touch him. Um, and that gives you just some sense of King's stature in Black America at this time. Talk a little bit about the emergence of the more radical elements in the Black community, the Black Power effort, Carmichael. You've talked about, but also the degree to which the shadow of Malcolm X hangs over this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so Malcolm X was was assassinated the previous year in 1965. And he is a figure who is very much admired by many uh, uh, in SNCC and in CORE uh, and other young militants. They feel like he sort of spoke to their generation and to their concerns. Uh, many in SNCC uh, remember a debate between Malcolm X and Bayard Rustin at Howard University. A lot of the a lot of SNCC's more radical edu- uh, were student former students at Howard University, uh, and that helped them gravitate toward uh, Malcolm X. Moreover. After Malcolm X's assassination, his autobiography has just come out, uh, and that becomes kind of a, a Bible of black power uh, in a way, that it becomes this really important text for, for many people to, to use. But black power is, is interesting because it both grows out of the civil rights movement. You know, those who are calling for black power are do so based on their experiences in the civil rights movement, but it's also in some ways a challenge to the established tenets of the civil rights movement as established by people like Martin Luther King. Uh, and it can express both... Frustrations, right? Frustrations with what they see as the very slow pace of federal reform. Uh, yes, the Civil Rights Act is passed. Yes, the Voting Rights Act is passed. But on the ground, uh, they're seeing a very slow enforcement of those laws. Uh, the life isn't really changing for, for poor black people in the South. And there's a frustration with uh, nonviolence as well, a sense that um, uh, if they really want to gain the respect of, of, of the nation as a whole, on a practical level, you have to you have to be able to defend yourself. Not calling for violent revolution necessarily, but more calling for armed self-defense. And in many ways, at this crossroads, as you talk about it, it was also a political crossroads because the stronger black activists were creating more opposition among whites, in, particularly in the South, which was really upping the ante in terms of the tension and really even had an impact on Lyndon Johnson and the administration in terms of the way they reacted to what they saw happening down there. Mm-hmm. I think what you're seeing by 1966 is among the political leadership in, uh, in the South, in general, a little bit more savviness about how to handle the civil rights movement, uh, handle in air quotes, uh, in the sense that, for instance, Mississippi Governor Paul Johnson uh, is following, for most of the march, basically a strategy that other historians have called strategic accommodation. Basically, the idea is, you know, don't openly challenge them, don't don't resist them every step of the way, uh, try to avoid incidents like the shooting of James Meredith. So he uses the Mississippi Highway uh, Patrol, the, the state police force, to provide for the most part, excellent protection for the marchers for most of the for most of the march, because he doesn't want any more incidents. And if they want to register voters along the way, sure, he says, so, you know, help them register to vote, work with the local officials there, let them pass along their way, and it will have a relatively low impact. The worst thing that we can do is create more national attention, which will lead to more federal registrars, more federal officials, and less sovereignty for the state of Mississippi. So they're sort of dealing with it on this sort of more practical level for most of the march, with some exceptions, as I can talk about. Uh, And then on the other hand, you've got Johnson, who's increasingly drifting his attention away from the problem of race in the South, 
this is the same guy who one year earlier has shepherded through the passage of the Voting Rights Act, who has said on national television, we shall overcome, and has also talked about expanding uh, you know, the next level of racial equality and tackling issues of class and so on. But in that intervening year, he's gotten very alienated from the civil rights movement. Uh, there was the Watts riot in Los Angeles, which he almost took personally as if it was a betrayal of his uh, of all his accomplishments in terms of civil rights. Uh, there was a big controversy over the so-called Moynihan Report, uh, which was a government mm-hmm. report that blamed some of the class issues that plague the black community on the structure of black family life, which that and that report really incensed black activists and, and uh, helped them to criticize Johnson. Uh, and also, he's increasingly consumed by the Vietnam War. In the, in the past year, there's been a massive escalation of troops, uh, and Johnson is increasingly concerned with anti-war protest and with uh, trying to handle this war and, and the slippery grasp he has on that. So he is increasingly, and he's also getting criticized by militants like Carmichael. So when the Meredith March starts, he people assume that he would use it as a lobbying tool for another civil rights bill. There was a civil rights bill before Congress uh, at the time. But Johnson quickly disassociates himself from the march for the same reason that Roy Wilkins does. He basically finds these them un, uh, unworkable. There's no reason to, to politically associate with the march when a number of the marchers themselves are criticizing Lyndon Johnson. King, at one point, when the tensions really start to amp up on this march, urges Johnson to provide a federal presence, and Johnson turns him down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's, you know, there's John Doerr, who's the assistant attorney general, is on the march almost the entire way. There are some members of the Justice Department and a few uh, members of the FBI who are monitoring the march. That's absolutely happening. But they're not providing the direct protection. Uh, so, for instance, the Selma march uh, the year before, there was the presence of U.S. marshals uh, along the route. And there was extravagant protection from federal officials uh, because a federal court order had preceded, the, uh, had preceded the march from the beginning. In this case, in Mississippi in '66 they've left the protection to the Mississippi State Highway Patrol. Now, marchers, they want protection from the federal government, not simply for practical reasons, for obvious reasons, but also for, as a demonstration of citizenship. You know, they say, we're exercising our rights as citizens to register to vote, to to walk down a highway. We deserve the protection of the federal government to do so. But Johnson, again, is very unwilling to do so. Uh, So when we get to the last week of the march, this gets to be particularly dramatic. Um... On June 21st of 1966, the marchers take a side trip off the regular march route. They go to Philadelphia, Mississippi, which is in West Central uh, Mississippi. And they go there because it's the second anniversary of the murders of three civil rights workers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodwin, and Michael Schwerner, which was, of course, a famous mm-hmm. story during Freedom Summer of 1964. So it's two years after that, they decide they're going to lead a memorial march through Philadelphia. Uh, but the problem is, is that because they're not on the regular march route, they get very little protection from the Mississippi State Highway Patrol, which basically means they're under the protection of the local police, the same local police who are then under federal investigation for the murders of Cheney, Schwerner, and Goodman. So basically it opens them to a mob attack. Uh, and you know, King later says he's never been so scared in his life. And they're, they're attacked by rocks and eggs, and they basically barely make it back to the black community uh, before more violence breaks out. So they, there are all these telegrams, these pleas to Johnson, please provide federal, uh, federal protection. You know, this, this, what happened in Philadelphia shows the dangers that exist in Mississippi. And Johnson essentially ignores them. Uh, he writes back a polite telegram that basically says, no, you, know, you're, you have the protection of the Mississippi State Highway Patrol. Um, the problem with that, as far as the last week of the march goes, is that as the march escalates, the state of Mississippi, which at this point, you know, the state officials are very frustrated with the marchers and their 
uh, and their militancy and the way that they sort of seized public land along the march to, to put their camps, campsites on. They basically now have carte blanche to deal with the marches however they want. They know that there's not going to be federal intervention. So as we get toward the end of the march, uh, the, the march ends on a Sunday. This, so the, the Thursday evening, uh, the marchers arrive in Canton, Mississippi, which is just about 30 miles north of Jackson. And they decide they're going to try to set up their tents in at a school uh, in the black community in Canton. Uh, and when they tried to do this before, in other parts, sometimes the, poli- the local authorities would say no, and they would do it anyway. So that's what they figure they're going to do in Canton. What are they going to do, arrest 1,000, 2,000 people? So what happens is they occupy this ball field. They start to put up their tents, uh, so they're going to stay there for the night. And then the Mississippi Highway Patrol rolls up in about a dozen, uh, a few dozen uh, police cars, and they get out in riot gear, and they tear gas the attackers. They don't use tear gas just simply as crowd control to drive them off the field, but rather they use it to punish them. They're shooting it directly into the crowd. They're shooting at people who are running away. And then they go in and they, and they beat the crap out of, out of the marchers who still remain on the field. Uh, it is an absolutely brutal scene. Dozens of people injured. Um, and again, it leads to these cries for federal intervention that go nowhere. One of the fascinating things about this is that there are no real images of it. There are no iconic photographs of what happened mm-hmm. in Canton. Mm-hmm. So contrast that to Selma here before, right? When the marchers are crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and they are tear gassed, right? It's it's a very dramatic backdrop. It's in the middle of the day. It's an early on a Sunday, uh, which allows for it to sort of go on to that day's news cycle, and for and for Lyndon Johnson to interrupt a television broadcast, deliver a national address. One year later, this is occurring late on a Thursday evening, past the evening news for that day, uh, and it's dark out. So photographers and television cameras find it very difficult to capture any really good images, and it's absolute chaos. But more important for that, more important than even just the, the lack of images, is the fact that it does. what made the, Selma, uh, the Bloody Sunday images so resonant was that it immediately drew the support of the federal government. The federal government used that as as a lobbying tool. With Canton, it's basically ignored on a federal level, so it never elevates from this level of just sort of the base outrage when it happens to anything significant politically. But of course, what it does is it ups the militancy level of people like Carmichael even more. Mm-hmm. So you get this dual uh, response from the from sort of the camps of marchers. For King, he says this proves the need for nonviolence. How can we be violent in the face? force like this. But for people like Stokely Carmichael, as you, as you say, it makes them even more militant. Because part of, the, part of the tenet of black power is that you know, we live in a fundamentally racist society. That, that you know, we can't, we're not converting our oppressors uh, with nonviolence. So our only response is to really use force to defend ourselves. Um, so there's no way around that for him. Talk a little bit about the the broader political ramifications that it had. We touched on it a little earlier in terms of of the reaction in the white community. It really gave rise, much of this militancy and and incidents like this gave rise to so much of the white reaction that we started to see in the country, in places like California, really everywhere. It really changed the political landscape. Mm Mm-hmm. So 66 is was, was kind of an important transformative year in that regard. Like as, as the Meredith March was going on, for instance, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan is winning the Republican primary for governor in, in California, and in that fall he'll win the election uh, to be the governor of California, which will sort of give sort of a, give a sense of sort of on a national level how the new right is is, is coming to power, this new generation of conservatives who are not associating themselves with the demagoguery of 
Southern conservatives like James Eastland or Ross Barnett. You know, they're not thundering against integration, but rather they're kind of ignoring that issue and instead concentrating on issues of law and order uh, and, and patriotism and military strength and so on, uh, that they're using that sentence. And Southern politicians are, are increasingly falling under that uh, under that banner as well. Um, so 66 is important for sort of the emergence of the new right on the national political scene. And one thing, that, uh, sort of a, a key buzzword by the end of that year among the media is a backlash, a white backlash against uh, what they perceive as the excesses of black protest. They, uh, they are starting to associate black protest less with the peaceful nonviolence and the moral high ground of Martin Luther King and more with uh, disturbances uh, in northern cities, more with uh, urban violence, more with uh, black power. Uh, and they, you know, it's difficult for your average white voter to um, fully grasp those issues and, and, to, and to side on that side. So increasingly there's a rising conservatism against that in 66. Talk a little bit about King's reaction to all of this and what he saw and didn't see in this transformation that was taking place? Mm-hmm. So for King, I, don't know, I, I came away from this, researching this book and writing this book with more admiration for Martin Luther King even than I had coming into it. And I didn't expect that. Um, and that a lot of it was the way that he was trying to balance the radical impulses of, of many other marchers with what with his core values of nonviolence and integration and the way that he was he would continually find ways to plea with people. He wouldn't use the the phrase black power because he cited an implicit criticism of nonviolence and integration. But at the same time he would try to articulate that same discontent. For instance he'd say, you know, we'll t- he'd talk about how uh, we'd get black officials and we and we'd improve black conditions when we got the ballot. That's what we mean by power. So these are the kinds of rhetorical ways that he deal with the issue. And he brought this moral strength uh, to the march and this, and this presence that was, that was so significant. But what King really wanted, what he hoped for, was that the march would help to highlight issues of poverty. Uh, and, the, and the march focused his eyes on, on that as well, because he was coming in a direct contest, contrast, into, excuse me, into direct contact with the poverty of black Mississippians. Uh, and this is the same summer when he'd already started to plan a campaign in Chicago, where, there, where his group, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was going to try to apply the tactics of the Southern Civil Rights Movement in terms of nonviolence to the sticky problems of race and class in a huge northern city like Chicago. So he's increasingly seeing race as a national issue. He's increasingly seeing the issue of poverty as, as necessary for a national priority. So it's to his intense frustration that he's not able to get, in particular, the press to focus on this issue, to help turn poverty into into something worthy of a larger national conversation and something which can lead to more federal legislation. That instead the press seems to highlight uh, black power and the divisions among the marchers rather than what the mar- the, but really what all the marchers stand for, which is you know, to improve the lives of black people in Mississippi. There's also a sense that you get of King being tired at this point, worn down from the battles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely by the last week, in private conversations, he's saying, you know, maybe this was a mistake to be on this march, uh, that, that, that he's worn down by working with, with the radicals. Certainly by the end of the march, uh, those around him, his advisors, are saying, we can never work with SNCC or with CORE again. Uh, that, that, that ship has sailed. Uh, and King, you know, he's, he's worn down. And he talks, there are times when he's really struck by fear. The, the instance in Philadelphia, the instance in Canton. But he also has a way of, at the same time, sort of rallying people to his ideals, like you know, he he recovers from the, from these from these bouts with self doubt, uh, and you know, 
that he he bears this cross, but he but he finds a way to to make it work for him. And talk about Carmichael, how he views this in the larger framework of what he's trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. So for Carmichael, right, he's increasingly he was working as a SNCC organizer since 1960. Uh, and much of his time had been spent in Mississippi. That was part of the reason why SNCC got involved in this march in the first place. But he was also disillusioned with his previous experience in Mississippi when uh, SNCC and core organizers had basically, during Freedom Summer in 64, had created an alternative to the to the Democratic uh, Party, with a party called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. But they said, was you know, this is the genuine Democratic Party because we're open to all. And we represent the values of the Democratic Party, and they took that to the Democratic National Convention that year. But they were were refused uh, to seat their delegates, besides just a, a small compromise of two at-large seats. And they sat instead sat the all-white white supremacist Mississippi delegation of Democrats. So there's that was helping this drift away from national politics for people like Carmichael. So the next year, in 1965, he started to organize in Lowndes County, Alabama, a, a very similar to the Mississippi Delta, a, a huge black majority county, he started to organize an all-black independent third party, one that is not associated with the Democrats or the Republicans. It's called the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, and its nickname is the Black Panther Party. Um, and so this is kind of Carmichael's prescription for what he sees as the problems uh, of race, that blacks can't fold into another, into a larger institution because it'll dilute their message and, and they'll be compromised. So instead... We have to create these power blocks, these power bases, wherever black majorities exist, whether that's in the rural black belt or whether that's in northern cities. Let's leverage that unified black power and use that to advocate for black officials and for black change. And once we've established this equal footing, then we can negotiate uh, with, with, with whites and with other ethnic groups. Uh, so we create these independent bases of power is essentially what Carmichael's vision of black power. And that can tie into an understanding of the larger conditions that oppressed black people or oppressed people of color face throughout the world. It can tie into issues of criticisms of nonviolence, but but the base of it is political for someone like Carmichael. And in many ways, the movement gets away from Carmichael. It becomes even larger than him and in some places more violent. Yeah. And so, you know, Carmichael actually leaves SNCC um, uh, soon in 67, the next year after after the Meredith March, because the organization has drifted into infighting and chaos and it's become overrun by militants who even see Carmichael is, is not militant enough. At the same time, Carmichael, he's, he's catapulted into this new position of celebrity through the Meredith March. He's sort of anointed as the heir to Malcolm X. Um, and he goes on a national speaking tour and he becomes this figure who is attracts what Malcolm X had attracted before in the sense of the admiration of, of many black people for sort of voicing their discontent, but also the hatred of many conservatives who, uh, who, who sort of see him as you know, public enemy number one. Talk about, in the big picture, the degree to which this was all a turning point. Had, if, had this march not happened, had Meredith not been shot, what might have changed in the broader civil rights landscape at the time? Well, I think the larger direction of black politics was moving in this direction anyway. What the what the Merit of the March did was it took every major figure from the civil rights movement and it crammed them into this three-week period in Mississippi in this extremely dramatic, tension-filled, uh, and also hopeful, you know, very, very powerful three weeks. So... It it took all of that and it, and it created this crucible that was that was that made the that made the story particularly dramatic. 
where the, the, the trend toward black militancy, militancy was going to happen anyway among gig radicals. Uh, uh, Martin Luther King was always going to hold on to his core values. Roy Wilkins, the NAAC, was always going to do, you know, trying to lobby with the federal government and maintain good relations. Those things were always going to exist. What the Meredith March did was it took that and it rendered that crossroads very dramatic. Aram Gajuzian, the book is Down to the Crossroads, Civil Rights, Black Power, and the Meredith March Against Fear. It's just out from Farris, Strauss, and Giroux. Aram, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.